0: them around your neck, write them on the tablet of your heart, so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all of your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing on this time. Holy Father in heaven, all wise God, we pray that you would take these words, that you would take your commandments, take your law, and write it deep on the tablets of our heart. Use your Holy Spirit to lay us bare before your law, to show us our sins so that we may be driven to Christ for sweet forgiveness again. Help us this night to be made more into the image of your Son. In Christ's name, amen. Before we jump into chapter 3, let's recall what we've seen so far in this book. In chapter 1, we saw that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the root and the source of all true wisdom, all godly knowledge. We've seen also that there are two paths before us in this world, Two competing options, two mutually exclusive avenues for us to walk. We can choose the path of foolishness, the path of folly, or we can choose the path of wisdom. And there are people that line both of those paths, people that call us, that entice us to join them. Sinners seek for us to join them on the path of folly. And they promise us things. They promise us riches, rewards, worldly acceptance, status in the eyes of men, and a whole host of other false senses of security. On the other hand, Lady Wisdom is calling for us to join her on the path of righteousness. She offers to make simple ones wise. She offers life. She offers... Not a false sense of security, but genuine security in the hands of the Lord Himself. In chapter 2, we saw more of the value of wisdom. It is more valuable than silver or gold or anything that this world can offer. Wisdom watches over her saints. She guards them from evil men. She protects them from calamity. And she directs them into the security of God's promised land. Thus, we now move into chapter 3, which begins with four verses that echo the opening of chapter 2, about keeping, storing up, guarding, treasuring God's wisdom. Listen again to verse 1 of chapter 3. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. Don't forget. Keep it. Preserve it. We could translate it, guard my teachings. The word for teaching is Torah, God's law. Don't let go of any of my law. Don't forget it. Keep it in front of your eyes. A wise person will remember God's teaching. This applies to simple things, and it applies to very complex things. How many of us as children were told to make up our beds and brush our teeth before we start our day and go to school? And how many of us, when asked by our parents when we didn't do those things, why did, what were you doing? Oh, I, I forgot. I forgot. I got distracted. I was, was going to brush my teeth. I fully intended to go brush my teeth, but, but there's Legos over here, right? I got distracted. That doesn't excuse us. Forgetting is not necessarily sinful, but forgetting something that is a biblically permissible law for us is sinful because we choose not to remember. Forgetting is not an excuse, especially once we move out of the preschool age. If something's very important for us, we remember it, right? We re- I remember when my birthday is because I want to make sure I get all my presents, right? You don't forget that. But if we don't find it important, we don't remember it. And the same skill of remembering is necessary for a wise man or woman of God. They learn to remember. They remember what is lawful and what is sinful. They remember what is wise and what is unwise. They remember the things that bring with them temptations, and they choose to avoid them. They remember the things in their life that promoted godliness, the people, the experiences, the schedules, whatever that promoted godliness in your life and they pursue after those things. They are active, they are intentional, they put effort into their pursuit of holiness and to their putting off of sin. But how often do we find ourselves forgetting? I forget that Proverbs 16:21 says, "Sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness." And because I forget, I Instead, deal harshly with my family members or my co-workers to get them to do what I want. I bark at them rather than sweetly pursuing them with the kindness and gentleness with which Christ pursues me. I forget that I'm fully loved and accepted, fully valued by Christ himself, and I instead turn to doing sinful things in order to get attention, in order to get validation from others. I forget that Proverbs tells me that the adulterous woman is on a path that leads to death. And so I let my eyes lead me down the path where I don't belong. I forget. I don't treasure up God's word. They don't stay within me. So what do I need to do? What can I do? Well, look at the next part of verse 1. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. That's a a strange phrase. Shouldn't it be, let your mind keep my commandments? Let your will keep my commandments? But he says, heart. And the remedy is that we need God's wisdom within us, but not merely in our heads. We need that wisdom to be pressed down into the very core of our being. I was asked this week to speak in chapel at Cornerstone, and the topic that was given to me was, what do I do when I don't want to read my Bible? What do I do when I don't feel like reading my Bible? And in studying to preach that morning, I had something that John Piper had written rattling around in my head, and I want to expand upon that idea tonight. So to try and answer my question, I went to two places in the Bible. And if you would turn a few chapters forward to Proverbs 22, I want to show you one thing that I taught the students in chapel. Proverbs 22, verses 17 and 18. Proverbs twenty-two seventeen 17 says, incline your ear and hear the words of the wise and apply your heart to my knowledge for it will be pleasant if you keep them within you, if all of them are ready on your lips. So the divine author here is making a connection between applying our hearts and pleasantness, pleasure, joy, the first step in those verses, we must incline our ear, right? When we, when we can't hear somebody, we, we lean in, right? we, we listen, we hear those words, those words are either spoken to us or they're read in God's inspired word, and those words in our mind form for us concepts, ideas, and we gain understanding of something, but that understanding is not enough. We need more than mere cognition, more than mere mental assent to the truthfulness of God's word. We need to go a step further. We need to apply our heart to that truth. We need that knowledge to be pressed deep within us, driven down from our head into our heart, the very seat of who we are. And if we do that, we will begin to know pleasantness, the author promises us, pleasure, joy, joy. The heart is the organ of pleasure, and our heart will begin to know joy if we have God's word going deeper and deeper within us. And so you're saying, preacher, that that sounds great. I want that. I don't have that. I used to feel something, but I don't feel anything anymore. I don't have a joy for God's word. I can read it, and it's just like I'm reading... The dictionary. It's cold. It's dead. It's lifeless. Or maybe I've never felt that way. I have no idea what you're talking about. Well, let me illustrate it what it might look like to apply our hearts to something. Again, using an illustration that Piper used. Let's say you're walking to work one day and you look with your eyes and you see the leaves on the tree, just like they are in this season. Last week they were green, but now they are red, yellow orange, and you know that they're absolutely beautiful and stunning. God's creative handiwork is beaming all around you, but you're not thinking about it at all. I'm thinking about work, I'm thinking about the meeting that's on my schedule, I'm thinking about the fight we had at home, I'm thinking about the kids misbehaving at school. Your eyes are seeing the leaves, but you're not seeing them. Your optical nerves are picking up the signals, confirming the color of the leaves, but you neither comprehend nor appreciate their beauty. You are seeing, but you're not seeing. What needs to happen? In that moment, what needs to happen? Well, you need to pause. God's grace will cause us to pause and press our heart into these leaves. We say, Look, heart, look at those leaves. Lean in and say, Heart, those are orange. They used to be green. Now they're yellow and gold, and the sun is illuminating them and making them bright. They are waving at you in the breeze, almost as if God is saying, look at me. Look at my glory. Look at the glory of my handiwork in creation. You take your heart and you push it into God's glory revealed in his creation. That's what we can do with natural revelation, with nature outside, but we need to do the exact same thing with special revelation, with God's word. We need to take our heart and press it into what we see. So to take another analogy, say you come home from work and you're starving. And you come inside and you hear something on the grill. And you look and you see a big steak there on the grill and you can begin to even smell it. Well, is there there anything else that we can do to increase our joy with that steak? Yeah. You take it off and you cut a piece and you eat it. You put it in your mouth and you savor it. You chew and you chew and you chew and you chew until you can't get anything else from it. You put it deep within you, down. You swallow it down to your very core. And we need to do that with God's special revelation, with his words. We need to Chew on it, chew on it until every bit of sustenance that we can is gone and that it's swallowed down to the very core of our being, to our heart. Say, well, preacher, what does that look like? Well, I took the students in chapel to Psalm 23. You can turn there if you'd like. Many of you know it. I said, how many of you students, I asked them, had memorized this psalm, and many of them, I think it's in kindergarten or first grade, they memorize it. So presumably everyone in the room has at least heard it. Most of the room had memorized it. Now, what does it take to get it from up here, where all of the students had it, and drive it down to their hearts? What does it take for us to drive this psalm down into our heart? And I realize this is a long tangent on the heart, but this is crucially important. I've had this discussion multiple times this week about what it is to have genuine heart level love for God and to be fed from his word, not merely to have our brains filled with more data about God. That alone produces Pharisees that are self-righteous or it produces people that are depressed because they can never measure up to God. But if we press our heart into God's word and read it not merely for head knowledge but for heart knowledge and for joy, we can see pleasantness that comes from it. God rewards these labors. And when we do it, when we're trying to press our heart into God's word, we will notice that we are naturally praying. We're praying. So what does this look like? Okay. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. All right? What does that look like? The Lord is my shepherd. Well, God could have plopped a systematic theology textbook in front of us, and He could have said, The sovereign, almighty God of the universe has providentially ordained that all means will come together for your good and His glory. That's true. But instead, He chose to give us poetry. And He says, The Lord is my shepherd. That's significant. So, what is it? How do we break this down? Well, it says the Lord. In my Bible, that's all caps. That means that's the covenantal name of God. That is Yahweh. This is a God that has covenantally bound himself to a people. And it says the Lord is not a shepherd. It says the Lord is my shepherd. The sovereign God and the creator of the universe has bound himself because of his sovereign good pleasure to me to make himself my shepherd. Not merely a shepherd abstractly. He's my shepherd. He will guide me. He will protect me. He will care for me. He will fend off the wolves. He will give me the food that I need. He will never leave me or forsake me. He's my shepherd. Therefore, I shall not want. You may feel wanting when you're reading this text. Say, God, I, I, I'm not exactly sure where these bills are gonna get, how they're gonna get paid, or God, I'm not sure about this test that's coming back or about this procedure I have to have done or about this family member that seems to be wandering. Lord, I want, I want, and I see this thing over here and I want it, Lord. But God in his sovereign word, his faithful shepherd is proclaiming to you you shall not want. I know you think you want, but I have given you everything you need in this moment. Everything you could possibly need, I've given to you in Christ. And I have not abandoned you, I have not forsaken you, because I, the sovereign Yahweh, have made myself your shepherd. That's just half of verse one. We're pressing our heart into here. That's what it looks like. I'm taking simple sentences and chewing and chewing and chewing and thinking about these things, and I find myself, when you're doing this, naturally praying. God, I can't believe, the day that I had yesterday was awful, and you're you're still my shepherd today. Thank you, God, that you don't abandon me, that you don't let me go. You just find yourself naturally praying. That's what it looks like to press into God's word, and we turn God's scripture into prayers, and into praise. Thank you God. You are my shepherd. I shall not want. I know Satan wants me to think that you are an unfaithful God. And that you're not giving me what I need. But your word tells me that I shall not want. And you make me lie down in green pastures. I, I naturally want to go over here into the slop. Into the pigsty. I am the prodigal son. But you instead love me enough to bring me into green pastures. Anyway, tangent over, let's go back to Proverbs chapter 3. That's what it looks like to press God's word with our hearts, to press it deeper into our hearts. That's why we want to read the Bible. That's my one big complaint about those year-long Bible reading plans. You're usually reading at such a clip that you don't have time or you don't make time to do this kind of deep reading and applying God's word in your heart. It was liberating for me. I read the whole Bible in a year, multiple years in a row in seminary because that's what holy people do. That's a good thing. That's a noble cause. Go for that if you've never done it. But after so many years, I found that I needed to take a whole year and just read Psalms and Proverbs. And so I did that slowly and chewed on it and it was good for my soul. I encourage you to do that. You have liberty in Christ to read the Bible In different ways. I need to stop doing all these tangents. (laughs) So back to Proverbs 3. How are we told not to forget God's teaching? And why are we called to do this hard, heart-level work of keeping God's commandments? Well, verse 2 tells us a first blessing of wisdom, and that is a long and peaceful life. Here again Proverbs 3, 1 and 2, My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments for length of days and years of life, and peace they will add to you. Heeding God's words will bring length of days and years to your life. Now remember what we're reading. We're reading in the genre of Proverbs. Proverbs are short sayings that describe the way things normally work in God's world. They're not direct promises, they're not predictions, but the proverb generally holds true. People that heed God's word normally have length of days and years added to their life. Proverbs 10, 27 says, the fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the life of the wicked will be cut short. Likewise, it's the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother, that has Tied to it in Exodus, the promise of a long and fruitful life in the land, in the promised land. Similarly, we all know that the opposite is true, that fools tend to have their lives shortened. Those that habitually disregard God's wisdom and the way that God has ordered his world to normally operate, they will have their lives cut short. We've already seen in chapter 1 that covetous sinners lie in wait to murder, but they lie in wait for what? For their own blood. They think they will rob and kill others, but it's their own life that they are forfeiting. Chapter 5, verse 22 tells us that the fool will die for a lack of instruction. And chapter 7 tells us that he who sins injures himself. You've likely seen this in your own lives. A fool that cannot control himself will become addicted He'll be a drunkard, he'll be a glutton, he'll be addicted to pleasure in such a way that his life will actually be cut short. Or a man that's consistently and habitually angry might have his life cut short because of hypertension and heart disease. A reckless man who rides his motorcycle wildly without a helmet will likely not live to see old age. Similarly, a fool that's prone towards violence will likely be involved with many altercations that will end his life young. Furthermore, this verse promises not only length of days to a wise man, but it promises peace. The wise man knows how to deal with people. He knows how to treat people with righteousness, with justice. He knows how to use his money and his time and his energy to be a blessing to others. And because he treats people with righteousness because he treats people the way that we would want to be treated wise men often have peace they're a good neighbor to have they're a good ally good friend to have they'll have many companions willing to help them out whenever they're in need because they have first been generous to others this is not like the fool fools are selfish they're greedy They're ready to swindle people. They're ready to use people to advance their own careers. They're ready to line their own pockets. Their lives are always in turmoil and chaos. There's always somebody mad, somebody biting at somebody else. Somebody's begrudging them. Somebody wants to bring them down, or somebody's always wanting to pay them back because they've offended them. Fools have no peace. So, thus far, we've seen that a wise man does not forget God's teaching, but he presses it deeper into his heart. And as a reward, God grants him life and grants him peace. But we have a problem. The problem is true for each and every one of us. The problem is that we don't always remember God's word, we don't always keep his commandments with our heart, and we don't live in righteousness and have peace with our neighbors. We forget, we forget that God has called us to keep his commands with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. We'd rather do what we want to do rather than listen to our wise father. We'd rather go off like the prodigal son and play around in the pigsty of the world, eating worldly slop. We'd rather roll around in our sin and strut around in our arrogance. But the good news is that our heavenly father is a forgiving father. He has provided a way through the blood of His very own Son that we can be forgiven. We we can be forgiven of all the times that we have failed to keep His law with all of our hearts. In fact, because Christ was faithful, because He was faithful in His mission, we can have new hearts. That's one of the things promised to us in the new covenant. Jeremiah, in his account of the new covenant, tells us that we're promised a new heart of flesh that will replace our old heart of stone and God's word says that he will send his very own spirit to reside in us he will cause us to walk in his statutes and his commandments previously we had a heart that could not and that would not keep God's word but in Christ we have a new heart and we're filled with his holy spirit that gives us a desire to keep his very law previously we were only and always the fool We were destined to know peace, but in Christ, united to the faithful son, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And that's the good news of the gospel. Do you have that kind of heart level peace with God? Have you experienced that kind of acceptance before him? If not, then I would encourage you to hear the call of Jesus Christ tonight and know that he stands ready and willing to receive you. You will never taste of lasting peace in this life, and apart from Christ, your future is a peaceless torment in hell for all of eternity. So I urge you tonight to consider your eternal destiny, and if you have come to Christ, then lean into him. See him as the one that has taken away your sin and your shame, who has given you a new heart, and that by the Spirit's help, he is ready and willing to help you keep His commandments and taste of His peace. Now let's move on and look at verse 3 and see another blessing of wisdom. Verse 3 says, Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck and write them on the tablet of your heart. There's that word again, heart. Let not steadfast love It's the word that Sean has mentioned multiple times. That's his covenantal love, that's his chesed. We could translate it loyal love, let not mercy. All of these things are in the same word group. And let not faithfulness or kindness leave you. The point is that a wise man is called to have the highest of integrity. He's not merely occasionally virtuous. He's not godly sometimes. He's virtuous all the time. His virtue is so apparent and so consistent, it's like a necklace. That's what we're called to do, bind them around your neck. Wherever we go, our necklace of wisdom should go with us. We don't take that necklace off. Wisdom is not hidden, but wisdom is a jewel that adorns. It beautifies. It sweetens. A wise person doesn't merely have adorning wisdom On the outside, but he has taken the time to press it into himself, to imbibe it in his very soul. That's what we're called to do. Write them on the tablet of your heart. That is, engrave it on the very core of your being, like we discussed above. And what does this person reap as a reward for such wise behavior? Look at verse 4. So you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. A wise man will find favor. The man that consistently shows love will be beloved. The man that is merciful to others will find mercy himself. Joseph found favor in Egypt because he was a wise man. David found favor in the eyes of Saul because he walked uprightly. Consistent godliness is a means to favor in the eyes of both God and man. Scripture connects the favor of the Lord with the favor we have among men. Proverbs 16 verse 7 says that when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies be at peace with him. If you're seeking God and his righteousness, you will receive favor among men. Such was said about Jesus when he was a child, that he grew in wisdom and stature and in favor, both with God and with man. Godliness begets the favor of others. But conversely, ungodliness, we can presume, begets disfavor. Wickedness evokes disdain from both God and Man, if you live in sin and in darkness, you will reap mistreatment and opposition. So, to make this very tangible, children, when you're always mean to your brothers and sisters, they will not like you. Grown ups, when you're always mean to other people, they will not like you. You will reap what you sow. If you're always bitter and cold and angry, you will end up lonely without the warmth of fellowship around you. You will reap what you sow. So how do we avoid such opposition, such disfavor, displeasure among men? How can we know how to behave in a way that brings the favor of God and with man? Look at verses five and six, which I'm sure you've all heard before, or at least seen on a coffee mug at Lifeway. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge Him and He will make your paths straight. So, trust in the Lord with all of your heart. There's that word again. This verse is the benchmark, it's the orientation of a child of God trusting in the Lord faith in the Father's promises faith in His providence faith in His graces and the words trust and lean in this verse are not merely an active choice it's not merely a cognitive decision like today I'll wear blue socks instead of black and I'll also choose to lean on God as opposed to my own understanding it's not merely that The word for trust originally had the idea of laying face down helplessly on the floor. Completely absent of self-support. The word lean means not merely incline, but fully support yourself on someone or something else. So to trust and to lean here means to wholly cast ourselves on the support of God. And a wise person will know that God is the object of their trust, even when all around them seems to be breaking loose. It's not merely a cold sort of objectivity, not merely a mental affirmation that God has the capability of supporting me. It's a full trust of all the heart. It's a childlike faith with an unwavering hope built upon a sure foundation. This is a confidence of of the truthfulness of God's own word based or manifested in his own faithfulness shown throughout the generations and most clearly seen proving his wisdom again and again on the cross of Calvary where we see his love preeminently. But instead of relying upon his wisdom, instead of trusting him with all of our heart, we like to lean on our own understanding. Adam and Eve leaned on their own understanding, and chose to take a fruit that didn't belong to them, even though the all-wise father told them not to eat it. Abraham knew that the sovereign God had promised him a son, but when he didn't see that as a natural possibility, he instead chose to lean on his own understanding and take for himself a child by Hagar. Aaron knew that God Almighty had delivered the Hebrews from the hands of the Egyptians, But he chose instead to lean on his own understanding and create for God's people a golden calf to worship instead. David was given a wife by the all-knowing God of the universe, but he instead chose to be discontent. To sin against God, to covet his neighbor's wife, and to take for himself the wife of Uriah, thereby leaning on his own understanding. And we do this too. We know that God desires for us to find joy only in the wife of our youth, but instead we like to lean on our own understanding and choose instead to desire another wife for ourselves. We know that God calls us to be content with what we've been given, but we instead choose to lean on our own understanding and covet in our heart the gifts that God has sovereignly given to others. We know that God has provided for us in Christ all the things that we might need in this life. But we instead try to lean on our own understanding and prop up other little idols in our heart, little golden calves, and worship those instead of worshiping our creator. And so the question for us is, why why can we trust in him rather than leaning on our own wisdom? Why should we lean upon him instead of our own wisdom? the answer is the gospel. The answer is because of the great love with which he loves us. He loves us enough to orchestrate the most fantastic and unbelievable plan of redemption that could be conceived. He has sent his own son, the eternal second person of the Trinity, to take upon himself the fullness of frail humanity and to live a life experiencing the curse of this world, to bear the scorn and hatred of mankind, even while upholding the very universe by the word of his power. Have you ever thought about that? Octavius Winslow put it this way he said so completely was Jesus bent upon saving sinners by the sacrifice of himself that he created the tree upon which he was to die and he nurtured from infancy the men who were to nail him to that accursed piece of wood that's how much Jesus wanted to fulfill his mission he endured the lashings he endured the crowns of thorns he endured the injustice of a sham trial and he endured the execution normally reserved for the vilest of criminals. And he did all of this for us. He was the perfectly wise son that should have earned the favor of both God and man, but instead he was treated with all of the disdain of a criminal. He was the faithful son who had earned by his wisdom years of life and peace, but instead he was treated as a fool that had earned a speedy death sentence. And he was the one that had earned by his wisdom to have his paths made straight. To have easy paths, paths with no obstacles. But he instead chose the path that he knew would lead to Calvary. The path that he knew would bring pain and heartache and betrayal and eventually death. And that is the plan of redemption that our God has made. And why did he do that? Well, one reason he did that is so that we can taste of the rewards that the faithful son has earned in our place. He has earned for us not merely length, and length of days and years of life, but eternal days and eternal life of unending bliss with him in paradise. He loved us, loved us with such a love that he wanted us to find favor in the sight of God rather than the wrath that we had previously earned And instead of a treacherous path culminating in an eternity separated from the blessed presence of our almighty God, Christ has earned for us a path that leads to peace in this life. Regardless of our situation, we can have peace because our destination is eternal salvation with him. We no longer have a blind and rocky path where we try and earn our way back into God's favor. We have a straight path that was blazed by Christ himself, a path that requires nothing other than faith in Christ alone, laying face down, supported by him alone. All we must do is believe in the Son and his redeeming work and his work in the place of sinners. His work as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and we too can have our path to God secured. So have you come to this Christ and do you trust in him with all of your heart? Or do you lean on your own understanding? Do you cling to an inflated sense of your own goodness? Do you think, I'm a, I'm a pretty good person? God will cut me some slack. We'll be warned tonight that God's standard is lowered for no man. And that this benchmark for God's favor is perfection. Your only hope is to come to Him in faith. And to receive the forgiveness that is offered. No other path is offered. No other way to him is acceptable. But for those that have come to faith. Through the straight path provided by faith in Jesus Christ. The benefits are vast. And one of those is the favor of God. Which we have the joy of seeing manifested tonight at the table. We have the gift of communion with God himself. He has set a table for us to dine with him. And we have merely a foretaste of that tonight. This table is reserved for those that are united to God by faith in Jesus Christ. Those that are seeking to walk in the path of righteousness. Seeking to follow after lady wisdom. If you're marked by the fruit of discipleship listed in Acts 2, that is devotion to the apostolic teaching found in God's word, to fellowship with God's people, to the breaking of bread and to prayer, then we invite you to join us at the table. You need not be perfect to partake. Indeed, none of us is. But you must be leaning not on your own strength. You must be leaning on Christ and his strength. Leaning on the one who has made your path straight. I will pray and then our table servants will come. Holy Father, we pray that you would feed your church. Nourish us. Help us again to rely on your strength and not on our own. In Christ's name, amen. Servants, please come. Start with the bread, but he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, each one of us have turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Holy Father, we pray that by your Holy Spirit we would be kept, we would be nourished, we would be strengthened, we would be edified, we would be wise. That we would grow in favor, your favor and the favor of men. By doing so, your name would be made great. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to close tonight by singing a hymn, hymn number 224. There is a fountain, 224.